Father, we do give you our all. We want to follow you. We want to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, who did live, indeed, a perfect life, not only to provide the righteousness we need for justification, but also to give us a human example of one who lived perfectly before you. And so, Lord, as we study the truth of Christ today, Lord, may we live like him, may we be like him, and may we trust in him and have faith alone in Christ who saves us. Lord, again, for those who may not know you, pray that you would come to their hearts this morning and stir within them a desire to repent, have faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. May they be justified today. Lord, we all trust in you for this moving, so we ask for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always such a blessing to be with you again in a few minutes after somewhat of an introduction this morning. We're going to read and study a little bit Ephesians chapter 2, so open your Bibles to Ephesians 2. If you are with us for the first time, we have begun this year with a series about our identity at NBC, who we are. You know, that's one of the subjects that at first seems so obvious. You come here, there's so much joy, there's so much love, and I'm always so impressed at the amount of, of happiness that's just in our church. It just is a very, very happy place. Most of us would attest to this, a very happy place. And I'm not talking about the facility, I'm talking about you, I'm talking about the people. And uh, in weird, strange times, I mean, this is a real rock, I think, for a lot of us to come to this place and be with one another and have that kind of joy. Back in April 2010, when I was first meeting with you all and this church body, we were sort of both thinking and praying about what God may have for us. I remember I had three questions for God or three requests and, and just humbly and ask, ask God to just grant me my request on this, that He would give me some assurance, some affirmation about these questions. The first question was, one, could I survive? Would this church support a pastor in a way that we can survive? We had four little ones at the time, and uh, my wife was super busy, not that she's not busy now, but super busy with these four little ones. Could we support, or could this church, or would this church be willing to support a pastor? The second question I had, would this church receive my preaching? That was, would they follow the pastor? And the third question I came to God for, you know, moving 4,000 miles away from my, where I was living, uh, my home, uh, would we be cared for? Would this church love the pastor? And I can say, that's almost 11 years ago, and uh, boy, we felt the love then, and we feel it even stronger today, and it's only grown. And it's not just uh, toward the pastors or toward leaders in the church, it's mutual. There's support and love and fellowship all in this church. Well, this is sort of the, the visual. This is sort of the, the external side of our identity. If you're here and you get involved in a small group, if you uh, get involved with people at the church, you start volunteering, you start working, and you work on those relationships, go to a family group, you're going to be overcome with that love. You're going to be overcome with that great mercy and kindness that we show to one another. Now, let me just say, if you do come here and you just sort of attend sporadically and don't get involved in a small group, let me say, you're not going to feel that kind of love and support. I remember one time a lady came to me a few years ago, and she said, Pastor John, you know, I've been coming to your church for a while, and I just don't feel connected, and I just don't know what's wrong with this church because I just am not feeling connected. I said, well, you come to worship 
She said, most of the time, not every Sunday, but most Sundays I'm there for worship. I said, are you involved in, in a small group? Well, you know, I'm kind of tired. And I get home and I don't really want. I said, well, you're, you volunteer anyway? No, well, you know, I kind of, again, I'm sort of busy on the weekends. I said, well, do you have some friends? You go to a Bible study or something? No, I don't really do that. And I said, I, I have a suspicion. I said, the reason you don't feel connected is because you're not connected. <laughs> maybe if you'd get connected. And I just want to encourage you, if you're one of those people that's on the fence, maybe you're even a member of our church. You're not going to feel the love and the warmth and the support that you should from a church if you don't plug in. It's a mutual love and joy to, to come in and plug in and be a part. And I hope that you would do that if you're one of those uh, few who aren't uh, involved in that. You'll, you'll feel that love. You'll feel that support. And uh, my prayer is that. Well, again, that's sort of the external. That kind of love and fellowship and friendship, it, you're not going to learn from the pulpit, me speaking or teaching you something. That's something you have to just get in, roll up your sleeves, get involved in people's lives, and uh, let, let, be a little vulnerable, let your guard down, and, uh, and get involved in that way, and you'll feel that love. That's, that's part and parcel to who we are as a church. But, but what's below that? What's our theology? What's our story? Who are we doctrinally, theologically? What's our DNA? And this is what I hope to clarify in these first few weeks of this year. Who are we theologically, doctrinally? Who are we spiritually? Once we do this, we'll return back to our study of Matthew. Uh, but we answer that first question, that question with a first answer, and that is to say we are Christian. You may be surprised to know that even with that most basic idea, there's a lot of places, a lot of people, a lot of Christian churches that aren't really clear about these things. To be a Christian is not some cultural experience. It's not just attending some church or, or being affiliated with the things of Christ. No, to be a Christian, we learned as we looked at those early people and looked at what they believed and what they taught, we've learned that these people as, as Christians believe certain things. First of all, we said they believe in the truth of Scripture. We believe this book or these, this collection of books is truly God's Word, and it's inerrant, infallible, in its original form, this is God's truth given to mankind. God has the ability, as God, to not only give us His perfect Word, but to, but to keep that Word, but to make sure that that Word is, is kept for the ages. And we believe that the Scripture is true. Second, we said we are Christian and that we believe in the Holy Trinity, that God is three persons in one. It is something we believe and Christians have believed since the very, very beginning as they looked at the Scripture, studied the Bible, they realized that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. We believe in a triune God. Then we said, as Christians, we all agree with those who have gone before us, not just Christians, but going to the Old Testament, those who were Yahweh followers, we believe in the fall of mankind. We believe that in Adam we all sinned. And we also believe that we are sinners, and because of all this sin, we stand before God condemned. Man is born spiritually dead. Man is born condemned. Unless God intervenes, unless God does something on our behalf, we stand before Him condemned. And then finally, a couple of weeks ago, we said, like the first Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior and King. The early Christians had a faith in Jesus Christ for justification. That's made being declared righteous before God. They're saved by faith, by trusting in what Christ accomplished, not in what we accomplish. By trusting in what Christ has done, not what we can do. They believe in justification by 
faith. So we trust that Jesus Christ is the Savior. We trust that Jesus Christ is on a throne. He is reigning as King right now, spiritually speaking, and, and will one day, the King will return. He will come back, and He will reign and rule eternally. The early Christians established this doctrine, this doctrine of justification by faith. This Again, justification is that action where we are declared righteous before God. And those early Christians believed that the way we are justified is by faith. Again, believing God's Word, not just having some sort of blind leap moment where we sort of hold our nose and close our eyes and take this leap. No, we look at Scripture. We open our eyes to the truth and the logic of the gospel, and we, we say, Lord, we believe what you have said. We have faith in what you have declared to be true of Jesus Christ. And so we believe that all believe, all who believe will not be put to shame. We join in this kingdom that Christ is establishing now. Well, just like any study of your DNA, it's not just about data, it's not just about doctrine, it is indeed a story. And we're part of a 2,000-year-long saga, and really longer than that as you tie it to the faith of the Old Testament saints. And the next step of the story of Christians, we, we can read about in the Bible, the next step that is that early in the life of the church, there were a number of challenges, but there was probably none so great as the one we read earlier out of the book of Galatians. It was a challenge to that idea, that final idea I left you with a couple of weeks ago, that a challenge to the idea of justification by faith. You know, like all successful lies, this was couched with some truth, it had elements of truth, but it was mixed with error. And in that early church, it deceived a number of people, many, many people. In fact, it deceived none other than the Apostle Peter for a short time. It caused a, a doctrinal crisis in the life of that early church. Are people really justified by faith? And people came around and they said, well, they're justified by faith. Yes, we believe that. But first, you've got to become a Jew. You've got to do some deeds. You've got to do some works, do some ritual. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you from Acts 15. That's when this crisis sort of came to a head in that early church. Acts 15 verse 1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, the word circumcised, yes, it means circumcision, but it also stands in for all forms of sort of Jewish common ritual, whether it's eating certain foods or doing, uh, observing certain laws, observing certain feasts and things like that. So this applied not just to men, but men, women, children, everybody. And they said, unless you become ceremonially, ceremonially a Jew, unless you go through this process, you cannot be saved. Verse 2, Acts 15, and after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. In other words, they're saying you have to keep these laws. You have to become, ritualistically, you have to become a Jew. Then you can be saved. 
And basically they were saying, I don't care what's happened, Paul. I don't care what's happened, what you've seen about the Holy Spirit coming to the, the Gentiles. You need to go back to those people and tell them you need to become a Jew. Then you can be saved. Well, those who said this, that you can be justified by faith, but first you have to become a Jew, they became known as the Judaizers. You have to become an adherent to Judaism first, and then you can become a Christian. Now, this is false, and this was so severe, this was so vital in that early church, it was such a big deal in that early church that Paul would write about it later in Galatians, which we read about a moment ago. These people believed in justification by faith plus works. Now, in the Acts account, this controversy is, is brought to the elders. The apostles are there. Peter and Paul and others are, are there to make this decision. Is it faith plus works, or is it just faith alone? And Peter stands up, and he says, essentially, listen, everyone, God makes no distinction between Jew and Gentile. In other, other words, we have seen Gentiles saved by faith alone. He says, don't put God to the test by placing a yoke of, of works and deeds and law upon these Gentiles who are already saved by faith alone. He goes on to say, by the way, you, you remember that our forefathers could never live up to the righteousness of the law. They could never actually fully fulfill it. So to say that now suddenly these people can fulfill it and then they can become Christian is asinine. So it was settled in that early church. They they refuted the Judaizers. They, uh, either the Judaizers repented or they were kicked out of the church. It was settled. The church was purified of this false teaching of justification by works. And the apostles were there to, to seal it at that first Jerusalem council. What the story in Acts does not tell us is the discussion. And we, we, we hear about the discussion. We're not here about what they discussed between Peter and Paul. There was a sharp disagreement between Peter and Paul. Peter had digressed and slipped into this teaching of the Judaizers for a little bit of time. And, and Paul tells us in Galatians that he had to sharply rebuke Peter and say, Peter, this is not true. We are justified by faith alone, not by faith plus works. This was the lie that the Galatians were falling for. And this is the reason that Paul wrote the book of Galatians. There were these churches in that region of Galatia, and Paul wrote those churches, because this lie had been spreading that you know, you're justified by works and then faith. And Paul is trying to explain to them this is a vital thing to get right. This is a horrible digression from the true gospel. In fact, he says it's not really the gospel at all. To tell someone they can be justified by works is not good news. It's bad news. They can never live up to the works of the law. So, Galatians 2, Paul tells uh, Paul tells us about when he confronted Peter. He goes on to say, Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Jesus Christ because in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. That's Galatians 2.16. So looking back in our history as Christians, looking back in our history, there is this marker. We have this crisis this false teaching crept in. It ruffled the feathers of, of everyone, even deceived good, godly people, even an apostle, Peter. And as they discussed it and debated it and looked at Scripture, 
they came to the same agreement that faith, uh, that justification, salvation, is indeed by faith alone. Now, did that solve that question from that point forevermore? Of course not. We humans, we, we desperately want some of the action, right? I mean, we want a little bit of the action in our salvation. We want a little bit of credit for having faith or for doing the right things or for going church, going to church or doing some, some rituals or whatever. And so this thing came back up again. And as you look at the story of Christianity, it was it probably popped its head up here and there, but it was about 300 years after the Bible was written, after that initial controversy, that it came up again. A man by the name of Pelagius lived in the 300s. Pelagius uh, denied a number of basic Christian beliefs, basic Christian doctrine. He denied, for instance, original sin. He believed we're all sort of blank slates. We're not marked with sin. We're not dead in sin. We all just sort of uh, need to exert some sort of goodness that's down deep inside. And if we exert that goodness, then we can be saved. And as an outflow of that thought, he taught people could essentially work their way to heaven. Save yourselves with good actions, love for God, other works, even the work of faith, he would say, is a work that merits salvation. Again, though, the church refuted this teaching with the help of Augustine, of Hippo. The church, most of Christians said this is a heresy. They looked at passages out of Galatians and Ephesians and Romans, and they they said, what is salvation? How, How is salvation, how is justification conferred upon an individual? It is by faith alone. And so they rejected this false teaching. However, there was no repentance this time. Pelagius, unlike Peter, did not repent. He did not come back into the fold. He did not follow Scripture. In fact, he just sort of turned out of the church and, and his followers and took them out to believe some other things. In fact, I, I think Pelagius died probably believing that he was a Christian justified by his works. He's facing the real truth as we speak. And basically, Pelagius said, be good, do right things, be moral, believe some of this doctrine, and you'll be okay eternally. Well, if that's what Christianity is, it's no different than any false religion. They all say that. Be good, be moral, believe some of this doctrine, and you'll be okay. That's what every false religion says. And I want you to note this progression. The first major challenge to justification by faith alone, there is a response, there is repentance, there are people coming back in, realizing the truth, led by Peter, coming back to this truth of justification by faith alone. The second time it happened, it was a little bit worse because the people didn't repent. They just turned out of the church and never came back in. Now, Satan got smarter by those two encounters. The next time that he brought this and carried this into the church, it wasn't obvious, it wasn't blatant, it wasn't big, and it wasn't all of a sudden. In fact, it took about a thousand years. He, he crept these false ideas, these false doctrines into the church one by one through the years. Instead of introducing people immediately to the defiance of justification by faith alone, he just worked for a thousand years, really, in the church among the people of God to, to sort of let them slide further and further and further and further away so that by the 1500s, 
the whole church, well, there probably were true Christians out there, but the church as a whole completely defied justification by faith and completely submitted themselves to a system of works whereby people would be saved. A little over a thousand years after Augustine and Pelagius, the church wholeheartedly embraced justification by works. It was so entrenched in the Roman Catholic Church that when a little monk in a rural town in a small university began to challenge this idea of works-based salvation, it ripped the church in two. There wasn't concession and dismissal like, like we see with Pelagius. There certainly wasn't repentance like we see with Peter. No, it divided the church. It vaulted the whole church into chaos, war, and eventually split the church, the Western church, into two. Of course, I'm talking about the Reformation, and I'm talking about Martin Luther. What's interesting is that Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis, initially protesting the actions of the church, he was not protesting their system of salvation. He did not nail the 95 Thesis as protest against salvation by works. No, in fact, I believe uh, Martin Luther actually believed in salvation by works as he nailed those 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg. He was protesting indulgences, and, and not really indulgences as a, as a, as a general idea. He was, a, uh, he was objecting to what was happening with another guy named Tetzel who was going around and, and selling time off of purgatory. But that was the spark when he did that. That was the spark that led him to start to uncover and sort of peel back the onion of, of what does the church, the Roman Catholic Church, which was the church at the time, what does the church teach about salvation? And he began to discover that what the church teaches is actually stands in direct contradiction to the Scripture. It eventually led Luther to believe in justification by faith alone. This would later be called, in Latin, sola fide, S-O-L-A-F-I-D-E, faith alone. As he began to dig in, it also led him to the idea that, that Scripture alone, or sola scriptura, was the final authority of the church and for the Christian. Scripture was not alongside popes and councils and leaders of the church. No, Scripture was over everything. It did not share authority. This was God's Word. And the Word of God did not share authority with popes and councils. It also led Luther and other Reformers to believe in what would become called solus Christus, S-O-L-U-S, Christ and U-S, solus Christus, that Christ alone, not the sacraments, not any priest, Christ alone mediates God's grace. It led him to the foundational idea of sola gratia, by God's grace alone, that we are saved by God's actions, not ours. And they finally pointed to the doctrine of soli deo gloria, that all of our lives are thus, because of all this, they are thus lived for God's glory alone. We do not gain or live for the glory of saints or popes. We live for God's glory alone. Well, those five things have become sort of the agreed-on tenets or beliefs which, around which the Reformers rallied. As time went on, they protested not simply the sale of indulgences, 
They protested the whole rotten system that over a thousand years had developed. And it wasn't simply that they protested. The idea of Protestant or protest was really a pejorative term, a negative term. It was that they stood for certain truths they saw in Scripture. Sola Scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, and soli Deo gloria. And these are called the five soli of the Reformation. Soli is spelled S-O-L-A-E. The five solas, or in the Latin, soli of the Reformation. Now, upon their discovery, revival broke out. Now, sometimes we look 500 years back and kind of think of these stern people engraved in wood carvings, and we kind of wonder if there's any spirit in them at all. But let me tell you something. This was the most amazing revival probably to happen since the time of the explosion of Christianity at the beginning. The truth of the gospel exploded. Millions of people suddenly were able to read the Scripture in their own language, and therefore millions of people were saved. The gospel was going out. It was spreading everywhere. And there was all these people moving and traveling and moving and traveling and taking the gospel all over that part of the world. And they took these truths, these five soli, to reinstate these truths as biblical truths, not just something that they came up with new and something that they had fashioned at their own minds. These are things that they believe the Bible speaks of, and to reinstate this into the life of the people of God. From that point forward in history, particularly Western Christianity, churches would either agree with Rome and come under the authority and doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and the Cardinals, or they would be Protestant. They would protest those things and believe in the five soli. They stood in contrast to Rome, particularly as it pertains to those five ideas. So this is the second major answer, answer to the question about who we are. We are Protestant. We are Protestant. We agree with those five pillars. We agree with those five standards, the solely of the Reformation. And so over these next few weeks, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through each one of these, establish them in Scripture, and establish them hopefully in our hearts. This is our heritage. This is our spiritual heritage. This is our our heritage in terms of just history and the story of us. This is really the story of us. This is our story. It's our family lineage. I was so happy. A few years ago, we were touring Germany, and I I came to Luther's home in Eisenach, Germany. I think this is where I saw this, and I saw a family tree of Luther. And down in that family ch- somewhere, I spotted the surname Kaufmann, and I was very excited because the German side of my family are Kaufmanns. I thought, well, this explains a lot. I'm related to Martin Luther. <laughs> That's a pretty common name. I think it means merchant or something. Uh, but I kind of took pride in, you know, maybe I'm related, maybe somehow. And let me just say, we don't have to doubt of whether or not, maybe we're not bloodline related to Luther, but we don't have to doubt historically we're related to Luther. Did you know that the the children of the Reformation came over to America, began to, to plant churches, start seminaries, and out of that movement, 
is what brought the gospel to Hawaii. In fact, some, some young Hawaiian boys got on a ship, ended up on the East Coast, going to those seminaries, coming back, bringing the gospel message to Hawaii. We just celebrated, I think this year, we just celebrated the, the 200th year of Christianity in Hawaii. They came back. It's part of our DNA. It, it was the foundation of our denomination. That, that's when it all got started. By the 1800s, you had these denominations looking to the Reformation, starting, preaching, looking to the Reformers, looking to the Puritans who did the same. But more than any of that, spiritually, there are forefathers. They believe what we believe. They brought the church back to these central truths that are articulated in Scripture. They, they righted the ship, and even though it split the church, they did the right thing, and, and many of them died, the Reformers. Many of them died for it. Many of them were killed. You know that Luther, even after he had gone through uh, uh, the Diet of Worms is where he was put on trial, even after that, and his, his life was sort of jeopardized there for a few years, many years, Luther, for many, many years, and he lived to an old age, but many years, he, he felt at any moment some Catholics would come, take him, they had the right, they had the government behind them, they would come and take him and, and burn him at the stake. He, he thought at any moment, and many of, because many of his friends died that way. They died to establish these truths, and these are our spiritual forebears. Now, lest you think that this is some minor difference, we really shouldn't, you know, a lot of people sort of do that these days. They, and they come in waves, it seems like, in Christianity. We just don't need to make such a big stink about the difference between us and Catholics. We all believe in a triune God, and, you know, Jesus is the only way, and we believe, you know, faith, and there's some, a lot of similarities. Why make a big stink about all this? Why not just get along? Now, that's not what Paul felt. Listen to the words of Paul. Galatians 1, 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contra contrary to the one we preached, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. What's astonishing is that Paul says this in the place in his letter that's usually reserved for a very warm, encouraging prayerful greeting. This was such a vital, serious issue, justification by faith alone. This was such a vital issue that Paul did not wait, waste any time getting straight to it and condemning it. The mixing of works into the cause of justification is anathema. It's a deadly error. It causes people to go to hell. It causes people to live their whole lives thinking that they're serving God, deceived that they are saved, deceived that they're going to heaven, and when they get there, God says, Behold, I never knew you. This is a vital doctrine. And Paul knew it was so deadly he could not wait to get to this idea. This is his most vehement letter that he wrote to any of the churches. Now, this is a, the central idea in Galatians, but sola fide plays heavily all over the New Testament. And like I said, I want us to zero in on Ephesians chapter 2. I know what you're thinking. Pastor John, that was a long introduction. 
we're going to be here till 3. I'll move through this very quickly. We want to establish this idea, and really, we've already established uh, last time the idea of justification by faith, so really, we only have sort of half the work to do here today. I'll move fast, but listen fast, and we can study this together. Your Bibles are open to Ephesians 2. Let me read to you from the beginning of the chapter, but we want to zero in on verses 8, 9, and 10, very familiar verses there. And you were dead in the trespasses uh, and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, three points pertaining to this idea of sola fide today. Write these three points down. Number one, we are justified by faith alone. We are justified by faith alone. You can hear this in Paul's words, can't you? This is precisely what Paul's point is. You have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Clearly, Paul is divorcing human effort from salvation. And how could it be connected? As it, Paul said earlier, we're dead in sin. God must do something out of His grace in order to save us. It's got to be something that He does. We don't go to God at the end boasting, I did this for you. I did that in your name. I accomplished this. I gave that money. I prayed a lot. My uncle, after all, is a pastor. That is human boasting. And the salvation that is provided in Jesus Christ alone totally excludes all human boasting. It is fully of God's grace, and therefore we come to Christ empty-handed by faith alone trusting as His promises and His deeds, not our own. What are we seeing in Rock of Ages? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked, come to Thee for dress. Helpless, look to Thee for grace. Foul, I, I, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Come to God empty-handed. He's saying a more modern him, not in me. I'm a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is not in me, but only you. Faith alone in Jesus Christ is what justifies. All works are excluded. Like I alluded to, a couple of years went by as Luther began to peel back this onion, and several years passed, probably 15, 
19 or maybe even 15, 20, after he had nailed those 95 theses and began to debate with the church, Luther began to savingly discover the truth of justification by faith alone. He had been working very, very hard. In fact, of all the people I've ever read about, he, he worked the hardest at saving himself. In fact, that's the whole reason that he became a monk. He, he wanted to save himself with his, with his deeds. He, he made a promise to St. Anne after a, a terrifying lightning storm and some other things that had happened in his life. He made a promise to become a monk, and he, he wanted to work his way. He wanted to justify himself by his works. There was a saying in Luther's day that went something like this, God will not deny grace to those who try hard. Common belief today, isn't it? God will not deny grace to those who try hard. Just try hard. You'll be all right. And try hard he did. As a monk, there are many righteous deed, he, deeds he was required to fulfill. Uh, for one thing, as a monk, he was to say the canonical prayers seven times a day, uh, they were to offer up 25 Our Fathers and three Hail Marys. So 175 times a day, he said the Lord's Prayer. 21 times a day, they did a Hail Mary. He also prayed in conclusion to each prayer, the Salve Regina and the Ave Maria. They were to attend Mass at least one time every day and go to confession at least one time every day. They were constantly to do chores and efforts, make efforts around them in the monastery and outside of the monastery. They were to, in fact, in his a group of monks, he was to go and beg for food. Additional to all those things, they were to complete dozens of different kinds of fasts and different repetitions and rosaries. They were encouraged to find ways to deprive themselves. There were nights that Luther confessed that he would sleep without a blanket in the middle of the winter because he felt like somehow this would merit righteousness before God. On top of all this, if a monk were to leave, say, to go see his mother when he came back, he had to do all the things that he missed. Luther went on a long trip, a very disappointing trip to Rome, and when he got back, he says he spent almost seven weeks not even sleeping, trying to get through all those prayers and rosaries and activities. This did not make Luther happy. All he saw was law. All it stirred up in his heart was frustration and hatred and irritation with how many laws that he was constantly breaking. He was always in the confessional, admitting his fault. One day he said he spent six hours confessing sin. He got up, started walking out, thought of another sin, walked back, and confessed again. And the sin he confessed was that he didn't confess enough. Luther was tortured. Luther says, I so tortured and spoiled myself by confessing and making sanctification that I looked for foreign sin, which I had not committed. Because of my remorse, I never had any rest, nor a clean heart, nor a peaceful heart. He had become a monk to find peace, to find God, to find salvation. But taking this idea of justification by works seriously, it truly tortured him. Now, one day, Luther... Again, it was a couple years after he nailed the 95 Thesis, Luther realized it was not his own righteousness that he would be saved by. God did not require his own righteousness that would save him. No, it was a righteousness, none other than Jesus Christ, that would be applied to him. It would be counted to him by faith. This realization that he had, this 
opening of the Scripture to his mind and to his heart is known as the tower experience. Here's what he says about that experience. Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on new meaning, and whereas before the righteousness of God filled me with hate, it now began to fill me, with, fill me inexpressibly with a sweet love. Luther discovered exactly what Paul says in Ephesians 2. You have been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. Faith alone. Sola fide. Point two, very quickly. Faith itself is a gift of God. Faith itself is a gift of God. Did you notice what Paul says there? Look at the verbiage really closely. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. This is a monster pronoun. What's it pointing us to? What's the antecedent? This faith. This faith is not your own doing. This is not your own doing. So according to Paul, not even the faith that we exert is our own doing. It is God in us by His grace. It is Him supplying us what we need at the very moment we need it. Faith, true faith, is not just believing some facts about Jesus. It is coming to the point that you believe that you are nothing, that you deserve nothing, and even when you do reach out in faith, you know that it is God in you, both willing and working His good pleasure. It is to God be the glory that you even could have faith, that you could even understand the gospel. And so you're broken under that beautiful story of mercy and grace. How much more mercy and grace can God display upon us? All right, let me give you the last point and we're done. What about works? What do we do with works, though? How do we understand? Are we supposed to... Are we saved and we just don't have to worry about any righteous deeds or works? Is it just over at that point? We can live whatever we want to live? What about works? Number three, works are the result of salvation, not the cause. True, righteous deeds, Holy Spirit-inspired, godly deeds. I know people, before they're saved, can fake it really good, even convince themselves they're doing good deeds, and they're doing good deeds on a sort of basic human morality. But in terms of like what we studied about man- mankind and their fall a few weeks ago, there's none good. Even those righteous works are as filthy rags. So we cannot do good until God works in us. Verse 10, for we, meaning Christians, meaning those upon whom God has granted this grace and given them the faith for salvation, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Stop right there. Clearly, this is not talking about the physical creation, though God, the Spirit, the Son, the Father are all involved in creation. This is talking about spiritual creation. This is about spiritual resurrection. We, referring to Christians, true believers, are not just physically created people. They're also spiritually resurrected, spiritually created people. So our salvation, or you could say our spiritual creation, our spiritual resurrection is not of our works. It is His work. We are His workmanship. Why? Why did God save us? Why did God pour out His grace upon us? Why did He grant us the faith whereby we could be justified? Why does God save people? For good works. 
which God prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. So God saved us so that we then, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, guided by the truth of God's Word, looking to Jesus, could finally live righteously and produce true righteousness, not for salvation, but because of salvation. Now, in the discussion of sola fide and the idea of works, there's always a question about James chapter 2, specifically verse 24. Let me read this to you. A person, James says, is justified by works and not by faith alone. You say, all right, pastor, I'm just going to delete everything you taught me the last few minutes. Now, ripped out of context, it does sound like he is contradicting what Peter says. It certainly sounds like James totally uh, contradicts Peter, doesn't believe, uh, excuse me, uh, well, it would be Peter and Paul. But if you just read the context of James and read what Paul is saying, you understand that these guys agree entirely together. And we know this because, first of all, in context, James is not discussing how a person is saved. Paul is in Romans. He's talking about how people, how we came out of darkness into light. How does God save a soul? James is not talking about that at all. In fact, James is talking about people who call themselves Christians who are not. He's talking about hypocrisy in the church. He's not talking about how people are saved. Secondly, true faith alone is, again, not James' subject matter. Rather, his subject matter is about what he calls dead faith. He's not talking about true faith. The subject matter that he's discussing is a dead faith. You could even put that, that adjective dead when he talks about faith right there. A person is justified works and not by dead faith. He says essentially that all faith is, even if that's all faith is, if it's just belief, it's just intellectual uh, acknowledgement, hey, the demons have that. That's a dead faith. That's not real faith. That's a dead faith. Again, the subject matter is hypocrisy and a fake faith. Finally, we're helped because both he and Paul take us to the example of Abraham, and he quotes the same passage that, that Paul goes to in Romans chapter 4 about Abraham, and it says, Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteous. Abraham had faith, and he was credited righteous. He was justified. In other words, he was justified by faith alone. But James goes on to say, his faith was made known, his faith was made real, it was validated by the fact that we see him doing what's right as he obeys God later on. He's saved by faith, but it isn't for several chapters that we see him actually obeying what God says. But he obeys because he had genuine faith. Genuine faith is always validated and certified with works. So Abraham was justified long before his actions. His good, obedient deeds came after faith, not before, not to give him justification. They came after. They're the evidence of true faith, the result of true faith, not the cause. All right, we've rushed through sola fide. Before we get to the Lord's table, let me just say this. I know there are many people here, maybe uh, watching on the video, and you've not had true faith. You've had a dead faith. You've had some emotional experiences or maybe some sort of intellectual affirmation of Jesus and the truth, but you've not had real faith. You've been dependent on your works. Maybe you're trusting in those works right now. I've done this. I've done this. I started coming to church. I, I gave some money. I did this. What you need to see is exactly what Saul, what Paul saw and he preached about 
What you need to hear is exactly what Luther later saw and preached about, that you need to surrender all and realize you are not saved by your works. Lay down your weapons of self-righteousness. Lay down your desire to justify yourself and merit salvation. Have a true surrendered faith in Jesus Christ. It's the only thing that's going to justify you, faith alone. And all of us, what a magnificent truth. This is not just some academic or worthless debate between Catholics and Protestants. This is the very nature of salvation. This is why we praise God. This is why we can come into a room and sing even louder than we would if we would have justified ourselves. We can sing loud because it was God and all God and nothing but God that saved us from the beginning to end. He's the author and finisher of our faith. We're saved by faith alone. Let's own this truth. Let's believe this truth. Let's obey it. And let's proclaim it until the day of His return. Bow your heads with me. Lord, we do thank You for this wonderful truth that is laid out for us in Ephesians and many other places in the Bible. And We pray, dear God, that You would bless us with the knowledge of salvation. Bless those who don't know You with a true understanding of genuine, biblical, saving faith. Not this false stuff, not the fake stuff mingled with works, but true faith who comes to God surrendering everything, acknowledging that we need even God to move in us to even have the faith for salvation. And so, Lord, we give you all the glory. We thank you for saving us. We worship you for sending your Son, Christ, to this earth who paid that penalty for us on our behalf. We worship you. We worship Him. We worship your Spirit. We come to you because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. We trust in these truths, and may we be faithful to proclaim these truths, believe these things the rest of our lives. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.